Join me for a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you so much that spring is here. Uh, we know that it's beautiful in itself, but we are reminded that new growth is something that you've incorporated into our hearts as well. If we're being honest, we know that many of us are tired and weary. Our hearts have been scorched in the sun and drowned out by rain, and our own sinfulness has broken us. But Lord, we need you to hold us and to remind us of your love and grace. We get caught in a state of constant wrestling and sometimes we become stuck in the blindness of comfort. We need you to cleanse us. So please wash our sinfulness away and revitalize our hearts in whatever season we are in. And help us to know you better and to grow genuine love for you. We constantly face unknowns, so we plead with you to work in us. Show us the freshness of redemption and grace and bring life to our days. Lord, please remind us that we are not trying to show people how righteous we can be, but rather to show them you and your character. And help us to crave time with you and in your word. Lord, we remember Don and Norma Toland as we partner with them in Wycliffe to help your word be shared with all people across the globe and their own languages so they can spend time with you too and in your word. So please bless this ministry and, and clear pathways so that your word can be spread. We know, Lord, that it's a dark world and that spreading your gospel can be difficult and even frightening. But please show us the beauty of the mission that you've given us and soften the hearts of others so that they can see their need for you and your saving grace. Please teach us how to love you with every part of our being and how to love others, remembering that they were also made in your image just as we were. So please bring us true joy, soften our hearts, and let our walks match our words. We know that there is beauty in walking with you. We ask that you show us this more and more, and that you'll bring color back to our lives where our sins and our struggles have faded it. Convict us, Lord, of our sinfulness, please, and remind us that in you, we are trees planted by streams of water. We don't have all the answers, but we know that we can trust you and rely on you to provide what we need. So we thank you, Jesus, for reaching out to us and for not abandoning us. And we thank you for taking the punishment that we deserve. And because of this, we don't have to remain in pits of despair and confusion. We can celebrate in your victory, Father, and and that you've created new creations within us through your sacrifice. So please bless this time, Lord, and bless Pastor Mike as he speaks from your word and shares. And I pray that our hearts will be prepared to hear and to act. In your name, Jesus, I pray. Amen. If you'll join me today, we'll be reading uh, from 2 Samuel. We'll be doing all of chapter 11 and then also uh, up through chapter 12, verse 7. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. She had purified herself from her uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. 
So David sent this word to Joab. Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. When David was told Uriah did not go home, he asked him, haven't you just come from a distance? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, the ark in Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my master Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open fields. How could I go to my house and eat and drink and lie with my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to him, stay here one more day, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on the mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah in the front line where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Joab sent David a full account of the battle. He instructed the messenger, when he had finished giving the king this account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up and he may ask you, why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know that they would shoot arrows from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, son of Jerubatheth? Didn't a woman throw an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? Why do you get so close to the wall? And if he asks you this, then say to him, also your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. The messenger set out, and when he arrived, he told David everything Joab had sent him to say. The messenger said to David, the men overpowered us and came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance of the city gate. Then the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. David told the messenger, say this to Joab, don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised it and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for the lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. 
Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thank you very much, Andrew. Thank you for sharing the word of God with us in a story that is a sobering story. I have a question for you today as I open this sermon. And the question I'm going to ask you is perhaps one of the most important questions that you will answer in the course of your life because it will determine whether you live your life in emotional, possibly even relational bondage, or whether you live your life in freedom. And the question is very simply this. How do you handle your sin? How do you handle your sin? When you know that you have sinned against the Lord, when you know that because maybe the Holy Spirit of God troubles your spirit and you know that your thoughts, your words, your behavior is sinful. Maybe you know because someone has called you out because of your sin. When you sin against the Lord, how do you handle your sin? Do you deny it? Do you try to excuse it? Do you try to cover it up? Or do you agree with God and do you confess it to him? As we continue our series in the stories of his power, I want us to discover this weekend the power of the confession of sin and the incredible power of God's grace to forgive our sin no matter how deeply we have sinned. Now, to fully grasp the dynamics of confession, both what it involves and where it leads, we're turning to, again, this sobering story, one of the most sobering stories of sin that is found in the Scriptures. In 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12, it is the sin of David and Bathsheba. It's a story of Israel's king and his fall from grace. Now, 2 Samuel chapter 11 verse 1 opens with a very interesting statement. I don't know if you picked up on this, but it is quite powerful. Look at what the Word of God says. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. Now, that should immediately cause great concern to every one of us. Because if you know anything about warfare in this day, when a king sent his men out to war, guess where he was? He was with them. He was at the front. He was leading his men, and he was setting an example for them. I've read this scripture many times, and I wondered, David, what were you thinking? You are the king. It is your responsibility to lead your men and the whole Israelite army into battle, but you have other priorities. And as you read on just a few verses, you know what his priority was? He stayed at home. He stayed at home. Now listen, I don't know if you've ever heard this before, but idle hands are the devil's workshop. Anybody ever hear that before? Idle hands are the devil's workshop. Idle David... Idle David, staying at home when everybody's out at the battle, idle David was tempted by the sight of beautiful Bathsheba. Soon, his lust led to adultery. Their adultery led to a pregnancy, which led to a failed plan to cover up both the adultery and the pregnancy, which resulted in the death of an innocent, but in their mind, expendable Uriah, the husband of Bathsheba. 
God's word is true. James, the half-brother of Jesus, writes, Each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full-grown, gives birth to death. But here's the good news today. Our God is a patient God. He is a gracious God. He is a loving God. He is a kind God. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says that God wills that no one perish, but that everyone come to a place of repentance of their sin. Our God is a gracious, kind, and loving God. And the people of God said, oh, you know that to be true. And no matter how deep our sin is, no matter how complex the situation may be, tangled webs that we weave by our disobedience and our rebellion, there is a God who is still loving you with all of his heart. He doesn't withdraw from you. He doesn't withhold his grace from you. Oh my goodness, look at what David did, and yet he loved him to the very depth of David's being. We know that because in 2 Samuel chapter 12, the Lord sent a man named Nathan to David. Nathan came with a story about one man's unjust and sinful behavior against another man. It's such a simple story. It's time to host a traveler from out of town, and here's the rich man, and he's got all kinds of cattle, and here's the poor man, and he has one lamb. And oh my goodness, the rich man wouldn't even miss taking a lamb or or a cow out of his cattle stall. He wouldn't miss it at all. But you know what he does to feed the traveler? He takes that one lamb, that one lamb the poor man has. And oh my goodness, when Nathan told that story, David burned with anger. He had an emotional response. As surely as the Lord lives, David says, the man who did that deserves to die. He must pay. Nathan's reply is very poignant. You are the man. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You, David, struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and you took his wife to be your own. At this juncture, David has a choice to make. He has a question to answer. And the question is this, how will I handle my sin? Now, let me tell you, David could have at that point denied his sin. But that would have been utter foolishness. To deny his sin, then how does he explain a newborn baby, a new wife, and a dead man? He could have excused his sin, but his response to Nathan already knocked the legs out of any effort to try to excuse away sin. Cover it up? (laughs) He's already tried that, and look where that's gotten him. And so there's only one thing left, and that is confession. And confess he did. The Word of God says, then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Six painfully honest words, and David confesses his sin. No denial, no excuse, no more attempt to cover it up. Look at it. I have sinned against the Lord. Now, are you aware that there's a whole lot more to that confession than those six words? 
that when you read 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12, you have to also line up Psalm 51 and read Psalm 51 with these two chapters. Because a third of the way into your book of Psalms and mine, Psalm 51 has this really wonderful little notation right before verse one that says, this is the confession of David as he committed adultery with Uriah's wife. And Psalm 51 is actually the fuller confession of a man broken before God because of his sin. He doesn't deny it. He doesn't excuse it. He doesn't try to cover it up, but he cries out to God. And in this psalm is the power of confession and the power of God's grace in forgiveness. Let's just look at the first 10 verses. Listen as I read just the first 10 verses of this psalm. Have mercy on me, O God, David writes, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I have been a sinner from birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you've crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Say that with me. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Oh, there's so much we could do. So much we could observe, so much that I could preach on in Psalm 51. I went back in my sermon files, and with all the sermons I preached over the years in Psalm 51, you'd be here till 1215. The other service wouldn't get in. But I'm not going to do that. There are two truths that I want us to see in Psalm 51. And they are powerful truths, and they are powerful for you, and they are powerful for me, and they are necessary for us to hear. And the first one is this, I'm a sinner. And the second one is this, I need a savior. I'm a sinner and I need a savior. I'm a sinner and I need a savior. Say it with me. I'm a sinner and I need a savior. I'm a sinner. One of the most helpful definitions of the confession of sin that I've heard in the course of my ministry is simply this. When we confess our sin, we are agreeing with God. We are agreeing with God about our nature and about our behavior. That's what confession of sin is. It is when you agree with God that you are a sinner and that you have sinned. And so when you confess your sin, you are agreeing with God regarding what he teaches about your nature and what he teaches about your behavior. Every one of us, now hear this, every one of us has a sinful nature. That sinful nature came to us as a result of the fall of mankind in Genesis chapter 3, when our first parents, Adam and Eve, chose to disobey and to rebel against the Lord and to do what he told them not to do. And so when they took that fruit from the tree that was forbidden of them and they ate that fruit from that point on, we know it, it's in the scriptures, the world as we know it fell and we fell with it. 
and every person born since that time, since all of us come from the seed of Adam and Eve, every one of us are born with a sinful nature. You don't have to wonder whether the world in which we live in is a sinful world. You, you can read the news. You can look at the news feeds. You know what's going on in this world. It is a sinful world. But we are sinners who inhabit this sinful world. The reality is we have a sinful nature. And out of that sinful nature, we behave in sinful ways. Now, I understand that in the culture in which we live, there are those who kind of argue that point. They say, wait a minute, basically I'm good. Basically I'm good. No, not really. No one is good. Basically or not. Well, I'm not that bad. Well, that's kind of repackaged I'm good. And, and, and then there are some who say, well, I'm not as bad as fill in the blank. Don't say that out loud right now, but... You know what I'm saying? I'm not as bad as, and every one of us can name one, two, or three people who are a whole lot worse than we are. And God is sitting in on his throne in heaven. He's saying, I'm not talking about that person or this person. I'm talking about you. This is not a time to compare. And by the way, in Scripture, there is not tier one sin, tier two sin, and tier three sin. And because I remain in tier three sin, I'm not nearly as bad as those who dwell in tier one sin. There is no such thing in the scriptures. Sin is sin, like it or not, and the reality is every one of us are sinners. Here's what God's assessment of us is. Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even me. Our sinful nature leads us into sinful thoughts, sinful conversation, sinful behavior, sinful lifestyles. Look no further than David and Bathsheba and the story this morning. So, then how do we handle our sin? When we sin, God wants us to handle our sin by agreeing with him that we are sinners and that we have a sinful nature out of which we behave sinfully. Listen to how David agreed with God that he was a sinner. Just listen to a couple of the phrases again in Psalm 51. He says, I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Now there's a word, transgression. Say that with me, transgression. I bet you that's the first time you said that word in the past seven days. It is not part of our common conversation. What does it mean? It is to violate a command of God. That's what a transgression is. David says, I know, I know the ways I violated your commands. My sin is in front of me. And he goes on, he writes, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are proved right when you speak. I agree with you, God, you're right. <laughs> I'm a sinner. Look at, look at the third thing he says. Surely I have been a sinner from birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. We call that original sin. And every one of us, no matter how much we love our children, have to admit that our children are born as sinners. I'm an only child. I have the blessing of two baby books in which my mother voluminously recorded everything that I did, good, bad, and indifferent. I don't have to look very far to know that I was a sinner from the time I was little because it's all there. Every one of us are in the same 
position. But there's a whole lot more. Verse 7, David confesses that he's dirty and needs to be clean. Verse 8, he confesses that he's broken and needs to be healed. Verse 9, he confesses that he has stains all over him and he needs someone to take them away. Verse 17, he says, I have a broken and contrite heart. Say contrite with me, contrite. There's another word you haven't said in the past seven days. What does it mean? It means to grieve over your sin, to have a broken heart that you have sinned, that you have hurt the God of the universe. The closest thing I can get to that is when you love your wife dearly or love your husband dearly and then you have hurt them intentionally or unintentionally, your heart is broken, you are grieved that you have hurt them. When you, when you hurt your child unintentionally, you are grieved. Oh my goodness, we have a hard time grieving sometimes over our sin because we can't see God with our physical eyes. And yet we must see him with the eyes of faith and know that when we sin, we grieve him and we should be grieved likewise over our sin. Now, let me make this very personal today. Let me ask you a question. What does confession sound like in your life? Every day, every one of us in our prayer time should be confessing our sin because I don't know that I've lived a day that I haven't sinned, thought, word, or deed. And so every day I have to ask the Lord, search my heart, find the sin within me. I confess to him that those things I'm not aware of, Father, forgive me, those things that I am aware of, oh, I bring them before the Lord. And I ask him to forgive me. Every worry, every errant thought, where I doubt, Lord, please forgive me. Wash that away. Sometimes, however, we come before the Lord, and this is what we say, I'm sorry, Lord, but. You realize that the but invalidates everything that has preceded it? Don't you just love it when someone comes to you, they've hurt you, hurt you deeply, and this is how they apologize. I'm sorry that I hurt you, but. And that's the last thing you want to hear. Because that is all an excuse. That is not a confession. How do you confess to the Lord? Do you agree with him that your sin is evil in his sight? Are you grieved over your sin? I'm a sinner. I have sinned. This is how I have sinned. I know that this sin is against you, Lord. There is no excuse. It breaks my heart. The confession begins when I acknowledge who I am. I'm a sinner. Say it with me. I'm a sinner. But say this. I need a Savior. I need a Savior. The reason we confess our sin to God is because we know that he is the only one who can forgive us of our sins. There is no other. David knew that. David lived a thousand years before the cross, but he knew that there was one true and living God and that that one true and living God was the only one who could forgive his sins, so he cries out to him. How much more, you and me? We live on the other side of the cross. We know that when Jesus went to the cross, he bore our sins in his physical body, your sins and my sins. The Bible says he became sin for us. He died to pay the punishment for our sins. He rose again by the power of God on the third day. He blazed the trail. He conquered sin and death and the evil one. 
And he offers to every one of us the free gift of salvation, the forgiveness of our sin, and a new and eternal life. The amazing truth of Scripture is we have a Savior, and his name is Jesus, and he wants to forgive us of our sins. Oh, Mike, you have no idea what I've done. You have no idea. I've never told anybody, oh, my goodness, he could never forgive all those things. Really? David committed adultery. David lied. David murdered. David experienced the forgiveness of a Savior God. And you can too. David's words by which he expressed his need for a Savior are full of humility. Look at Psalm 51. Listen again. Have mercy on me. Wash me. Cleanse me. Blot out my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. He gets very explicit. And he says, save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me. Blood guilt. There's another word you haven't used in the past seven days. You know what it means? Blood guilt is the guilt a man or a woman has when they have taken the innocent blood of another person. David had blood guilt, and yet he knew he was a sinner. He knew he needed a savior. I need you, God, to save me. And we do too. Here's the truth of Scripture. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. And you know his name, don't you? His name is? And Jesus alone. Let me put all this together for you so you can grab a hold of what confession is and live it out in your life. First of all, the word of God says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Where does confession begin? It begins when I say, I'm a sinner. Lord, I'm a sinner. Would you forgive my sin? And the word of God says that he promises to forgive us, to cleanse us, to wash us free of sin and guilt and shame. He takes the whole thing and removes it from us. But confession continues because in Romans chapter 10, the word of God says that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead then you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it's with your mouth that you confess, that you confess and are saved. What is confession? It is the confession that I'm a sinner, and I need a Savior, and I know who he is. He is Jesus Christ, the Lord. Confession is powerful. It is life-changing. Our confession invites God's work of salvation in our lives by which he forgives our sin through the merits of Jesus Christ and he gives us a new and eternal life. We see that in David's life. God forgave David. He cleansed him, he healed him, he took away the stain of his sin. Now let me say this to you. Hear me when I say this. David still had to deal with the consequences of sin. In the course of my ministry, there have been people who have occasionally challenged me and said, well, if God really loves me, then, then he'll also take away all the consequences too. No, no, no. Listen, we live in a human economy, a human environment. Here's the deal. When we sin and we confess our sin, God graciously, powerfully washes away our sin 
and he removes the eternal punishment of our sin, which would be death. Will there be residual consequences in this human environment in which we live? Absolutely, there will be. We will have to sometimes live with certain consequences that our sin invites. Because often sin involves other people, innocent victims of our decision to sin. David had consequences he had to live with. There was the grief over a a child that died. There was dysfunction that was in his family. You know, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree saying, well, sometimes when we set those sinful examples, David saw one of his own sons behave sinfully as a result. There were consequences. But David had a choice. Either I'm going to live in the prison and the bondage of sinful behavior, or I'm going to confess and let God break that bondage and do an amazing work in me and an amazing work in my life and my family, and he did. I learned about the importance of understanding the consequences of sin years ago and the importance of understanding the restoration of God. When we went to Baltimore to plant a church in 1986, Jenny immediately became an InterVarsity staff worker at Towson State University, and she joined the InterVarsity campus work, worker team. And uh, about a year into her service with InterVarsity, we got a letter in the mail from the board of directors of InterVarsity sharing with us that the president of InterVarsity at that time, Dr. Gordon McDonald, had confessed to an adulterous relationship and he was being removed as president of InterVarsity and that he had consented to be placed under accountable discipline so that there could be in the course of years ahead possible restoration to ministry. Dr. McDonald had confessed his sin. He had experienced the forgiveness of God and the forgiveness of those who loved him and those who had worked with him, and yet he had to pay the consequences for that sin. The immediate consequences included the loss of his position as president of InterVarsity, the loss of a number of speaking engagements. In fact, he had written excellent books. One of them had made such a difference in my young pastoral life, Ordering Your Private World. Those books didn't do so well for a long period of time. There were consequences because of his sin. He did not push back against those consequences. He did not try to excuse himself. He didn't bemoan those consequences. This is what Gordon MacDonald did. He placed himself under the authority and he submitted to the authorities of the Church of Jesus Christ. A group of nationwide godly mentors began to work with him. And over the course of a number of years, Dr. Gordon MacDonald experienced this incredible restoration of his ministry and his life. His credentials were eventually restored with the agreement of his wife, his family, and those mentors who knew him best. He went on to pastor a second time at a church that he had pastored years before, the largest church in New England, Grace Chapel in Lexington, Massachusetts. He went on to become a speaker and to continue to write excellent books. But interestingly, remember Paul's sermon a few weeks ago? He wrote them from a place of humility and weakness, understanding humankind as he had never understood it before. I invited him to be a speaker at our seminary when I served there. I spent a day and a half with him, and there is not a more humble man, more godly man, a man who had experienced the forging of his faith through the fires of adversity that he had brought on himself, but... He knew the power of confession 
And in the course of time, because he submitted to the accountable discipline of the church, he knew the power of God's grace in restoration. David did too. David fell from grace, but he was restored. In Psalm 51, he cried out. He said, don't cast me from your presence. Don't remove your Holy Spirit from me, God. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Restore it to me. And God answered his prayer. God did that for him. A thousand years later, the Apostle Paul, preaching in the ancient city of Pisidian Antioch, said this about David. After removing Saul, God made David their king. He testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. From David's descendants, God has brought to Israel. From David's descendants, God has brought to Israel. Say it with me. The Savior, Jesus, as he promised. This is the power of God's grace in response to a man's confession. Here's the truth. We are sinners. Well, it's in all caps, so I think we're supposed to say it together. I'm the one who put it there. Let's go. We are sinners. We need a Savior. When we confess our sin to the Savior Jesus, he is faithful and just to forgive our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How will you handle your sin? 20 years ago, when I was serving as bishop of the Evangelical Congregational Church, I visited a different church every Sunday preach different places, and most of them were pleasant visits. This particular visit was to Findlay, Ohio, to a church that was troubled where there were two different parties in the church, and they were divided, and they were not happy with each other. Bishop, would you come out and preach? We'll have lunch together, and then you can sort this out and help us heal the differences we have. First thought was, this will be a pleasant lunch, but anyway, sure, I'll come out. I left Lancaster late afternoon on that Saturday because I had family activities and I drove about an hour from Finley and I took a hotel room and the next morning got up, got the free breakfast. Always look for the free breakfast. And as I was leaving, I thought I ought to take a drink with me. It's an hour drive. So I filled up a cup with cranberry juice. I had nice white shirt on, long sleeve white shirt, nice tie, sport coat going to a church that's divided. They're upset with each other. They weren't very happy with me either. That was the other part of the story. So I thought, oh, here we go. This will be fun. Had my Tums in my pocket for afterwards, you know. Got out to the car, put my jacket in the back of the car, put the cup of cranberry juice on the roof of the car, took the cup of cranberry juice, that's okay, in my other hand, and lowered myself into the seat. And as I lowered myself into the seat, the cup went up in the air. <laughs> cranberry juice came down, landed on the white shirt. Oh, my goodness. You ever see cranberry juice against a white shirt? Kind of have a pink tone to it. There we go. I thought, oh, they're going to think I'm some kind of goofball here. I'm gonna, I don't have a shirt with me, and what am I going to do? And I was really worked up about this. And then a light bulb went off. Hmm, I wonder. So I got my jacket out, and I put it on, and I 
button, the top button, I thought, well, look at that. As long as I keep this button buttoned and I keep it in line with this button on the shirt, you can't see a single stain on my white shirt. That's what I'll do. I'll just keep this coat on and keep that button lined up with that button and I'll be fine. Talk about a stressful morning. Because I'm greeting people, making sure the buttons line up, kind of standing like this, then I'm preaching like this, you know, making sure everything lines up just fine, nobody sees all the stains on my shirt. We get to dinner, and we're sitting there, and this very observant woman was across the table from me, and I leaned forward, and she said, oh, Bishop, what's that red stain on your shirt? And then it was, I realized, my vanity, my vanity, my pride. And I thought, this is ridiculous. I am exhausted from trying to not let people say that I have stains. And I took off my coat, and they all laughed. And they said, you're just like us. Now, I wasn't sure what that meant. I, to this day, I'm not sure, you know, whether they are a bunch of spillers too. But anyway, I'm not sure. But it's like it broke things down. And for me, frankly, it was a great relief. I gave up my pride. And I didn't have to work hard to cover up my stains. It's exhausting to cover up your sin, friends. Where's out? Every day trying to make sure all the buttons align so nobody sees. And you know the only reason you're doing that? Vanity. You can't get past your pride to agree with God that he is right and that you're a sinner, and you need his forgiveness. So give it up. Don't deny it. Don't excuse it. Don't cover it up. Confess it. Let's pray. Gracious Father, thank you for your word today. Thank you for the powerful truths of 2 Samuel 11 and 12 and Psalm 51 and the way in which you marry them together in our minds and hearts. And I'm just going to pray one thing, Lord, that wherever there is sin that has been denied, excused, or covered up, you would root it out. You would convict and you would lead people to confession, those who are here in this building and those who are listening online, so that there would be greater freedom in our lives because we're not trying to cover up and disagree with you about our sin. Lord, would you do such a work of freedom through confession we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.